Hello everyone and welcome to episode 25 of Wake Up Call. So we're back and we are better than ever because we have even more people with us today and we're going to talk artificial intelligence and the labor force and how will AI change our future basically and what you should be expecting as university students. So before we begin though, we do have some things to say. I mean, it's just been a busy couple months for us. I had exams all of April, Milda had exams all of May, uh, and now finally in June, we're getting some time to focus on the podcast again. Um, and in our brainstorming, we thought a really good idea was to add some more people to the show, present an even more diverse array of opinions. And you know what they say, double the double the people, double the content, right? So I would firstly like to introduce our brand new panel. We don't have a catchy name or anything for them quite yet. We'll, we'll figure that out. But for now, it's just the panel. Archie, let's start with you. Who the heck are you? Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so uh, as Vishwa mentioned, my name's Archie. Uh, I study economics at McGill University. Um, Vishra and I met because uh, we sat next to each other in a lecture um, at the beginning of this academic year and uh, we've been arguing ever since. So uh, I guess Vishwa decided we should put those arguments on a camera um, <laughs> and he had the platform for it. So yeah, uh, I, as I said, I'm a student. I am currently working on a substack, so I, I write a bit too. Um, but for now, I'm, I'm the new, one of the new panelists. All right, moving swiftly on. Danny, tell us about yourself. Thank you, Vishwa. Yes, uh, so I study at Leiden University, like Milda. Uh, we met because I was uh, amazed by something Milda was doing for uh, a TEDx talk at Leiden University, and I attended. And I guess uh, Milda sent me a message from there. So that, that's how I'm here. Um, but I'm originally Spanish-Pakistani, uh, but now I find myself in the Netherlands studying political science. I absolutely love the course. It's quite arduous as well. I also do Mono United Nations uh, at Leiden University, which is absolutely a dream to be a part of, to be a leader in the school and in trying to, to help people, at least as our motto goes, find your voice. So that this has been kind of a venture for me the past year, very busy, but I couldn't be more thankful to be here on the wake up call. Uh, so yeah, very excited for the discussion today on AI and I uh, bring it back to you, Vishra. Yeah, Danny actually alluded to something very interesting that I miss mentioning. Everyone should check out Milda's TED Talk that she gave for Leiden University. Um, first of all, because it's very good. And second of all, because it might sound familiar to some of our longtime listeners, as it was inspired by one of her early rants on this podcast. Um, check it out. Shameless plug for my friend over here. All right, let's get into the topic of AI. I mean, it's been all the buzz these days. Chat GPT has gone fully mainstream. GPT-4 just came out and can do awesome things. Archie, I know you're a bit of a Chat GPT enthusiast. How often do you use it and what do you use it for? Uh, yeah, so I'd say I um, I use it more now that I'm kind of not in university for the summer and I'm working on projects. Um, as, as you know, the course we that we take is, is quite maths heavy. And so I don't really trust it with that. And uh, obviously all the rage is, is people using ChatGPT for their university work and whether that's considered cheating or not. So for me, that's less of a problem. Uh, I'm, I'm working on building websites and I used to work uh, for a copywriting agency and it was very helpful in those regards. So if I was 
uh, struggling with a piece of code or just needed something written quickly uh, where the quality didn't matter as much and I didn't need that kind of oversight and input um, to write it myself. Um, so yeah, I'd say I use it for projects outside of school, but in terms of kind of broader conversation around chat GPT and its use in academia, I'd say that kind of affects me less. Yeah, um, so I, I think, and Milda, you, you'll kind of resonate with me a little bit. Our course, I'm not sure if it merits a lot of ChatGPT uses. For sure, recreationally, I was using ChatGPT a lot when it came out uh, in November and December. I, it was a blow-away platform to just try to interface with the, this just basically website that would produce briefs of text for you that were long, thousand word, thousand word plus essays, essentially. That's what I did. I did a lot of essay prompts. Um, but in terms of schoolwork, uh, not so much. In terms of research for MUN, or Model United Nations, that's been extremely useful. Uh, I found ChatGBT to be an incredible research tool, especially to find archives and certain specific research uh, databases. Like, for example, let's say I need to find uh, when the UN talked or spoke about a certain issue in a treaty, a charter, a speech, and it'll reference that. It'll say, okay, Antonio Guterres spoke about uh, the, situ the coup in Mali at this date in this, uh, in this place, and that I can search that up and find more information on it. So it's been really great to catalog that information. Um, but other than that, uh, I've still have yet to really use ChatGPT to its full competencies, but I've been keeping track, at least online. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate. ChatGPT has honestly been my bestie in like my university life, but also my work. In uni, I love using it to paraphrase things. Like when I'm writing an essay and I need the summary and the like conclusion, I just paraphrase the, the like introduction to become the conclusion in different words. Or we had a coding little class. I don't know how to code. So I used a lot of help from JADGPT to help me pass that course. And also I'm a teacher. I teach public speech debate and I teach feminism as well. So whenever I need material for the classes, like, oh, help me brainstorm exercises for public speech classes or summarize this feminist book for me so I could present it to the students in three simple arguments. It has saved so much of my time and I love it. Yeah, it's kind of insane. Um, I mean, I use ChatGPT for like similar purposes, but it's kind of insane how much it just makes my life more convenient. As of right now, I haven't figured out how to give it prompts that are things that I could not ordinarily just do manually, but it definitely is something that saves me so much time. When I'm writing an email, I just put point form notes on what I want to say in the email, and it writes me a beautiful email that I can send to a prof, I can send to a prof, um, you know, anyone that I'm keeping in touch with, my boss or anything like that. So that's what I normally use it for, is for emails and, and, and summarizing readings and things like that. But while I was at the Canadian Economics Conference um, last week, um, there was a professor named Avi Goldfarb who's done a lot of writing since like the 2010s about AI as a GPT. And a GPT is a general purpose technology. So essentially what it is, without getting too into the weeds and technical, is technologies that um, breed innovation across sectors. So for example, electricity. Electricity was a GPT, 
because when it was invented, every single sector in the world was impacted and innovated based on the in, uh, on the invention of electricity. And, you know, brand new sectors were formed as a result of electricity. So there's there's very few such GPTs. And, and his theory is that eventually we're going to look back and we're going to see that AI is a general purpose technology. So um, moving on, a lot of people are concerned that AI is, is going to replace us. What's what's going on around the world in terms of in terms of that actually happening? Is anyone being replaced? I don't know if we're being replaced. I'd say we're being changed. I think the demand for the services that humans put out now is still going to exist in the future. And if anything, the supply of those services is only going to become more efficient and better. I mean, I was speaking last week to a family member who's a graphic designer and I was asking, you know, how is ChatGPT changed the way you work? Obviously, we're seeing technologies that can create visual images that are A, hyper-realistic and B, completely customizable. And are companies, you know, looking at these technologies and replacing his work? And he was saying no. I mean, what ChatGPT is good for is, uh, is, is generation. We call these things generative AIs, and that's what they do. They can generate images. But he was saying that oftentimes he's using it for... Uh, you know, iterate 10 times over this idea and give you 10 different designs. What AI can't do yet is decide why one design is better than the other and also pick out the elements from each design that make them good. It's generative, but it's not um, it's not discerning. You know, it doesn't make decisions for us. And I think that's what it's doing. It's changing the way we, we behave and the way we create because it can it can generate at speed and at scale, but it can't it can't make the decisions for us anymore. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And I think that we have come to this turning point where AI will obviously fire a lot of people, but it will also employ a lot of people. And with AI, we have a world which kind of emphasizes what is so important about being human, that we're creative, that we're, you know, we still don't have AI that completely mimics the human mind, as you mentioned, Archie. And we're able to make those decisions that are just more mindful and creative and innovative. But in another way, I think that AI will create so much more bullshit jobs, which are only about supervising AI and making sure that it creates the right decisions or it's leading in the right path. But those jobs will be, you know, humans will just do the jobs that are very mechanistic, boring, just supervising lower tier level robots. So here's here's something interesting that I, I sort of realized from this, this same talk that I'm going to keep citing from the Canadian Economics Conference. Um, when the computer was invented and spreadsheets sort of became a thing, um, the best accountants remained the best accountants. So back in the day, accounting used to be entirely whether you're good at adding things up manually. Accountant exams used to just be sums and sums and sums of accounts and that would be it. And then eventually the computer came along and spreadsheets became a thing and that was no longer a part of the job of an accountant. That was no longer a skill set you needed. Yet the first people that figured out how to use those computers for accounting purposes were the ones that were already good at accounting. So essentially, I think this furthers Archie's point where it just makes people that are already good at their jobs even better at, at their jobs. And I think that that has the capacity to I don't know, shove some people out of the market, um, depending on how tech savvy you are. 
Uh, Danny, we haven't heard from you. Any thoughts on this? Uh, um, actually, I think that's really interesting because uh, the World Economic Forum, I was reading their uh, Future of Jobs report for 2023, and they predict that six in 10 workers are going to require digital training before 2027. Um, but half of those workers have inadequate training opportunities today to reach that point. I think that's a really interesting point to bring in in terms of job cycling uh, and, and, and bringing uh, obviously people up to scale with where AI is, is going. And I love the example that you bring up of the spreadsheets and computers. Uh, actually, the, uh, the grandfather of the US rail system, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he mentioned rail because at that point it was, is, is rail going to replace horse-drawn carriages in terms of transit? And he said, well, uh, obviously horse-drawn tr transit will exist, but trains are going to change the way we move. And I think that AI is going to resonate a lot with that in, in the job sector and providing tools, assisting our work already. So for example, in healthcare, it's seeing, okay, how can AI better help keeping medical reports instead of having humans do that type of sorting, which is typically quite intensive. Um, but I think the nexus here, which I find very interesting, has to do specifically in the arts. Um, obviously, as students in economics and political science, it doesn't necessarily contain to us, but I think it's still quite an interesting feature. So there was a uh, an AI program called Stability AI. It's like um, DAL-E, which basically a text-to-image platform. And essentially, they had multiple suits filed against them by small uh, small artist coalition in the U.S. because the language model was being trained on basically images and art pieces that these artists created. Um, and that's creating some sort of generative AI bias because every text prompt that you put in, say, okay, create me a, an image of a cat. Well, I was going to say, okay, how many other images have I seen of cats and blue skies? And how am I going to merge that together? That's biased. I think that's a really interesting one. I, I would like to hear your opinions on, on that specifically in, in art. Um, but yeah, I pass it on. That's, that's such a great point, actually. Um, I would say that AI, I mean, AI, first of all, is right now a closed system. It just has a bunch of data. And the only thing it can put out is based on some combination of the stuff that's put into it. It can't generate anything brand new, I guess. It's almost like driving a car, but only having the, the rear view mirror available as your way of, of navigating. Um, and I think, that, I think that the intellectual property question is a really important one because the data that's being put in isn't necessarily consensually being given to the AI and the AI is using it for all sorts of things that that company is, is, is profiting off of. So I think it begs the question, does the people that generated that data in the first place that's being input into the AI, do they have some sense of ownership of that or, or, or what? I'd like to see what the result of this lawsuit is. And also, I think it's, it's not only about the art, but also about just, justice systems and hiring procedures. If we take AI to make those decisions for us about who's guilty or who's more likely to be a better hire, we yeah. ultimately let AI make the decisions, but the AI is biased, right? Because data is biased. People are biased. People are racist and homophobic. And uh, we cannot really trust data and the sort of unbiased nature of AI, as some people like to call it. 
make those decisions for us. So I think we shouldn't kind of let AI do all of that work for us yet. I think uh, to what Danny was saying about kind of the intellectual property argument and um, AI in the arts, I think the interesting thing here is that, you know, if you take AI music as an example, you can now create your own music based on artists without that artist's involvement. But, you know, that wouldn't be possible without the artist having made the art in the first place. And so, yes, you're having an AI that is trained on, on people's art and people's music, but that wouldn't exist without human creativity. And so, you know, it's, it, it's almost as if, you know, if I was a musician and I heard a song and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, I want my guitar to sound like that on my next song. And I didn't copy it completely, but I took inspiration from it. How is an AI being trained on people's art any different from me, you know, training my musical ear on someone else's music, right? I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not too sure what the answer is, but um, it's an interesting parallel. I mean, that is a good point. I Like in art, they, they say that there is nothing really original. All art comes from, from somewhere. If we, if we listen to John Mayer, for instance, you can't get John Mayer without Stevie Ray Vaughan or his plethora of other musical influences. So, in, right, and you can't get you can't get visual ex without exactly, Mayer, so. exactly. Archie, you get the point. But I think the legal question is really important. Uh, recently, you might have heard of this incident called "Death by AI," where a person unfortunately committed suicide after getting permission from a chat bot. That's an AI. So it begs the question whether, you know, the developers of that AI are responsible or whether the AI itself has some legal autonomy in this. I mean, so, so the AI, sorry not to make light of the situation, but the AI told this person to kill themselves and they killed themselves. It was a long conversation. It wasn't like a clear indication, go kill yourself, but it was like a long conversation. And then in the end, it had permission. Was this on ChatGPT? I mean, unfortunately, I don't know. For me- I believe this is on Snapchat, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, the Snap AI. Okay, okay, interesting. Sorry, uh, Vishwa, continue. I just wanted to know. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that like this person, I mean, this AI and the developers don't really have any life. This person is probably, was probably in a very unfortunate circumstance and a terrible mental state that they probably would have gone on to commit suicide whether they had this conversation with the AI or not. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that the AI helped them in any way, but I feel like it's a separate conversation about mental health rather than the culpability of AI. I think also this, this is kind of similar to what I was saying previously, but you know, if someone human had told them to kill themselves and they had, there's another question as to whether that person will be liable. And so if you're going to question whether the AI is also liable, I suppose the question you're asking is to what extent should we anthropomorphize AI? To what extent should we treat it as a human being, right? That's a, it, it's a really interesting case. Um, I think, especially with GPT, they have these warnings to sort of safeguard themselves from legal prosecution in the terms of answers that they generate, but that's only in terms of how biased the answers may be based on the text that they've learned from or had training on. But on this, this is very bizarre. But I have seen instances online, not on big media sources or anything, where you, through enough prompting of an AI, let's say in a single in a single text thread, because AI also has its, its language model that it learns from and all the text that it's gaining from there, but then it's also learning from you. I think that's the most interesting part. Because if you, I, I saw it just a very, it's, it's almost naive, a very, a uh, small example of someone convincing ChatGPT that two plus two equals five. And it, it was really, 
it's really trivial. It doesn't mean anything. But the idea was that the robot, or the uh, sorry, the the language model, at, when it the nexus was made clear that this could be feasible, the language model had no problem delivering that as true content or true evidence because it doesn't have a, a you know a sort of um, I would say morality filter that I guess humans have intrinsically. So I think that's also an interesting one, but it also tells us that AI will still develop in that sense and its ability to understand human empathy and, and emotion in terms, in terms of how we respond to false claims and misinformation. But yeah. I'm glad you brought up the idea of, of AI getting better because I think that's a nice segue when we get to start talking about AI regulation. Um, a lot of people think that this is something that should be preemptively regulated, that AI is something that's so dangerous or so game-changing that we're just not ready for it and we should basically regulate it out of existence. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I can start, I guess. Uh, I know that right now the EU is working on its own agenda on AI and obviously, well, the organization that I'm involved in, for example, Effective Altruism, they talk about the biggest problems in the world and AI is actually on the very, very top. It's like one of the main issues they talk about because they truly believe that it can end the world and drive humans to extinction. So um, I personally know people that are calling to uh, a halt on AI development until we truly understand it and figure out everything that's happening with it. And I do believe that there has to be strong regulation because People can use it to do very bad things if it gets um, very accessible and very progressive as well. I have a point here if you want to argue. No, Danny, you go ahead. Are you sure? Go ahead. Go, go for it. <laughs> I, just, to re just to respond quickly to Milta. Thank you, Archie. Uh, but just to respond quickly to Milda, because I was researching this exactly. So the really interesting thing on regulation for AI is how the big global economic powers are responding to it. I think I'll start with that. Um, the biggest, I would say, regulation effort, as very correctly pointed out by Milda, is from the EU. Um, and for example, just, I think, where was this? In 2021, they developed a regulation on artificial intelligence services, sort of like a amending the union's legislative acts on determining what is the baseline privacy levels that AI is going to have, how it's going to be implemented and revisioned. So it seems like the EU is, is stemming that. The United States, on the other hand, is probably the most interesting one because in the US, you have, I would say the most important AI stakeholders are residing within one country. And it has to do with who can regulate it from within the United States and who's going to stem its growth. Silicon Valley will stem its growth instantly and it seems like that's where ai is going you see google pushing tremendous amounts to make sure that ai makes it into their workspace which is obviously a great tool but you see how that's going to turn into something google has a very long-term plan for ai and that's that's notable but here uh the biden administration published a blueprint for an ai bill of rights of sorts but what i found interesting was it talks about so safe and effective systems algorithmic discrimination, privacy, but it doesn't talk about job security or replacement or employment. And so in looking at how AI, like you say, with effective altruism, Milda, will replace humanity, it seems like that's not on the top US agenda right now. It seems like they're more inclined to let 
the rollout of AI systems come to fruition. And it seems like the U.S. has the most reluctant to actually begin regulating it because you have stakeholders from the U.S. Congress to the federal administration, but then you have individual federal uh, contractors who are trying to work on this, like the international or the American Telecommunications Union, which is trying to do its own thing. So in the U.S., it's like that. And I'll finish with China. China's another interesting one where they're trying to sort of bring AI regulation and fruition into one. Um, so I, I find this a very complexing issue on who will regulate AI. We, we can't answer that question. What I think is certain, and this is, I guess, more my opinion in that sense, is that AI is going to be regulated to the extent that it doesn't damage the essential fruition for people. Uh, and governments have to do their job, especially democracies who are uh, obviously responding to voters. Um, but yeah, I leave it to you, Archie. Sure. Uh, I think to your point about who is uh, most eager, which country is most eager to regulate AI, um, this, this might sound a little political, but I think the EU kind of has a bias towards regulation in any domain. Uh, it tends to kind of move towards regulating uh, preemptively. Um, no, I think you're right. The US, the US is sort of reacting, whereas the EU is anticipating. But I think maybe to bring something different to this discussion, the interesting thing is the people calling for the regulation. Yes, they are politicians, but predominantly they're the people leading the AI rollout, which is, is different. I mean, if you look at other issues where people are calling for more regulation, you look at banking, you look at oil, um, various other climate issues, you can kind of split them into, into sides of the political aisle. You've got generally Democrats and people on the left calling for environmental regulation. You've got, um, you know, similar issues around financial regulation and regulation of banks. Here, it's not a political issue. People are saying this needs to be regulated. And people are saying that not because it drives home a political point, but because they're genuinely concerned. And I think that's what's unique about the situation, is that the people who understand it best are the people who are most concerned, right? When Vishwa is using it to draft an email, he's not thinking, you know, me drafting this email is going to contribute to the extinction of my future job. But the people who really understand it at a high level are, and they're not thinking that for any political gain. And I think that's what's interesting here. I don't know if anyone wants to add on to that. Yeah, I completely agreed. I mean, all of this talk about regulation kind of just as an econ student, and I'm sure the two of you as, as international relations students, just makes me think of game theory, really. It seems like if the US or Europe or whatever decides to stop AI and stop the development of AI, um, or at least um, shackle it in some way, it seems like those that refuse to do that have a lot more to gain economically um, from the development of AI and becoming world leaders in AI. It's not like AI is going to stop developing. It's just going to stop developing within the borders of the country that's, that's shackling it and, and regulating it. Um, and yeah, I agree. It's not a, it's not a political issue, but I do think, um, in terms of traditional left and right or whatever ideology, but I do think that it's a geopolitical issue in the sense that no country has an incentive to shackle it because other countries are going to get ahead that way. It seems like the, the payoff ratios are, are a bit whack here and we'll just continue to get unfettered AI development. It's my two cents. Yeah, but I think that's why it's super important to 
goal from my ideological position to educate people on how AI will affect their jobs, especially people that have replaceable skills that AI will likely replace them in the future and grow that consciousness sort of. Because I do think that AI can significantly make our lives better. It can reduce our working hours. It can raise our wages if it's more productive and will grow more profit for us. But obviously, if we're not the ones making decisions about our employment, and if our financial stability and our working hours are still determined by people who give no care to us at all and who do not care about our interests, but they're super rich and somewhere at the top, well, obviously then AI will not help us at all. I think, sorry, I hate to jump back in, but to what you were saying about educating people, uh, ahead of this conversation, I decided to ask AI pretty much that question. Uh, how should we, how should students best position themselves in terms of the job market, whatever, um, to see what ChatGPT would say as an AI. Um, and it essentially said, I'll just list off a few of the points here, um, embrace lifelong learning, develop AI related skills, focus on uniquely human skills, which is interesting. It's basically saying focus on all your skills, um, seek interdisciplinary knowledge, adapt to new roles in industries, cultivate a growth mindset and have ethical considerations. There's nothing that specific there other than just level up, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Just be yeah. better. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think the only thing that I, uh, I think the only thing, Archie, that I take from that, which I think is really interesting, is the develop more human ass- assets. That sounds, re- it's really vague, but when I look at it in the essence, I also go back to the to the art example, and also I would say something as simple as let's say blue collar work since we talked about that uh because uh, i was reading an article on the economist um which is titled your job is you know parentheses probably safe from artificial intelligence and what it says here is that you know blue collar workers are actually really especially really afraid about these jobs getting taken away because for them they seem like oh if a robot you know they've replaced our jobs in factories what happens if they replace our jobs in certain uh, fields but what it's said here is that in, in the human skills, so for example, let's say if, are we going to replace all plumbers? Is that going to be an AI tool? Well, obviously not. That's impossible. You know, maybe we'll have an artificial intelligence app, which will help a plumber dissect uh, an issue with a toilet or a drainage system, but the plumber still has to do the work. And I think to what Milda says on, on increasing wages in, in that sense, I, I actually would like to see how you think that that would work out because for, I, I see this from the corporate standpoint as cutting costs for certain industries. So for example, you have to train the plumber less if he's able to dissect the issue using a robot tool. So I'm interested on your take. Um, I mean, this is the same logic as when uh, we industrialized and introduced uh, machines into the workplace. Uh, Machines and robots and computer systems are able to not get tired and to work forever and to generate more services and more products for us that will grow more profit for us. The sad thing is that, um, you know, bosses and owners of companies will more likely fire people instead of actually accommodating their needs, um, raising their wages or limiting the amount of time that they work. So this is just a, a very socialist position for me, but obviously not likely to happen. RTS has something to say, for sure. I No, I, I really didn't. I'm just laughing because I, I was thinking about what you might be thinking, which is probably what you were doing too. Yeah, I was thinking about what you might be thinking. But um, <laughs> just, to, just to sort of 
talk about something that Daniel was saying earlier. I saw a billboard. Uh, it was hilarious. It was a, of a construction company uh, over a construction site. And they're like, hey, ChatGPT, finish this building. Sort of driving home the point that ChatGPT can only do so much. Um, and what I think is, is, is really interesting about, um, about ChatGPT in, in, in the labor market is that I think it does, it's going to, like has been the consensus on this panel, do different things for different groups of people. Um, and again, when I was watching this talk at the Canadian Economics Conference, there's, there's an equal argument to say that ChatGPT will increase inequality as there is an argument to say that it will close inequality. So the argument that it will increase inequality has already been spoken to by us. It's like, it's, it's basically only going to benefit, as Milda would say, the, the rich capitalist pigs at the top. But the counter argument to that, something that I find quite compelling, is that ChatGPT can actually make traditional white collar skills such as coding, uh, computer work in general, finance, accounting, um, things that, you know, are generally reserved for the upper classes, white collar members of society. It'll make them much more accessible to people all over the world. I mean, how difficult would it be for someone um, that's, you know, in a, in a part of the world that doesn't have access to university to obtain the skills required to do complex data analytics and computer science? It, it's basically impossible. But with the improvement of, of AI models like ChatGPT, they can write the code for them. They don't need to have any sort of coding skills or experience to do that data analytics. They just need to have some basic understanding of statistics. So I think that there is a chance that it would sort of reduce a lot of these skill barriers in society um, and potentially reduce some of the wealth inequality across the world. No, I was, I was going to say, it sort of it reduces the barrier to entry for kind of the menial tasks that are only menial for the most intelligent, the highest paid workers, right? So if you're, if you don't have access to many resources, but you're trying to start a business in order to, you know, further your own economic well-being, and you need a legal letter drafting, but, but you don't have the resources, you know, to access a lawyer, you know, maybe this is a side hustle and in the day you work a blue collar job, you just don't have the access or the knowledge or the education to do that. Okay, well, now you can ask ChatGPT to, you know, write you a fairly robust letter, right? And, and sure, it might, it might not be legally perfect. Um, and maybe it, maybe it wouldn't hold up legally, but suddenly all the people who didn't previously have access to these things around which there was a significant economic barrier, they, they do. And so, yeah, I, I think I'd agree with Bishwell that the argument for a kind of contraction in wealth disparity and opportunity disparity is, the argument for that is, is just as compelling. Yeah, all you need is an internet connection and you have access to a whole bunch of skills that would take years and years and certifications and certifications to learn. I mean, I do, I do see that for sure, but in a lot of ways, I do see how even before ChatGPT, this already existed. So many online courses that you could take for free and um, get certifications and then get a job as well. It's just kind of like, do people have the time and the incentive to actually take that up? Right, but I, I think now you, you're, you're removing that barrier, right? If, if it's going to take me 30 hours to take a course on XYZ, but I could the thing that that course is teaching me to do, I could just ask ChatGPT to do in five minutes, right? You, you've removed the cost of that. And, and, and did you know that, that inequality for the first time in 2023 is actually going, for, for the first time in a long time, is actually going down? 
uh, in the world. So maybe there's some sort of technological lag from the invention of the internet to, to now, and maybe it's attributed to a bunch of other factors, but the trends are being reversed. That's a very interesting point, um, because I, I'm sort of on the line with Milda here in saying that in terms of what skills we can give to people through regenerative AI, I think that's a, a very interesting one. I look from the political science perspective, or I should say research perspective, I see that happening a lot. So in terms of synthesis of very large documents, and you know, we talked about in our preliminary discussion, which is sort of, oh, is there a sort of a knowledge cap, right? That, that a skilled worker should know in the world. ChatGPT, as an example, does a fantastic job of minimizing that a lot. Let's say, ChatGPT, I need you to give me a 100 word report on the country of Ghana. And I, let's say I'm looking up 25 countries. Uh, on the African continent because I'm devising a paper. ChatGPT is going to help you a lot in finding the necessary information that you're going to need to pick out to create the paper. However, I think that we must be careful that if we use these sorts of shortcuts for knowledge, uh, saying that GPT systems will help us get knowledge quicker, and especially those who cannot access knowledge, is the quality of that decreased? At the end of the day, the language model is going to, let's say, take the knowledge that it has from 50 websites or papers and th synthesize that. But there's also something intrinsically valuable about that one research paper that was written by three researchers who have a very certain perspective. And ChatGPT synthesizes that. So at some point, do you think that if all of our knowledge about certain things is gathered using GPT language models, that you lose that quality? Yeah, I, I don't want to dominate the discussion here, but I think just a quick point, as people rely more and more on ChatGPT and these kind of time-saving ways of collecting knowledge, what I think might happen is, to use a financial term, suddenly there might be some alpha in just doing the reading and doing the work, right? There might be some advantage, some return you're going to get above the baseline that everyone else is getting from reading the textbook, you know, from going out and reading the reports instead of having them summarized. And maybe I'm wrong, and of course, as large language models get better and better, the return on just using those will, will increase. But as we're sat here in this kind of very early stage of, of generative AI, AI, I think there is still some value in, in just doing work. Archie, you really love to use that alpha example with textbooks all the time. This is about the third or fourth time that I've heard Archie say that there is some alpha in, you know, just reading the textbook. Yeah, and then I don't read the textbook, but, you know, <laughs> I can talk the talk. I think we can all relate to that. Okay, well, I think this is a good point to wrap up. And just as a last thought, I guess, um, I saw somewhere on the internet an amazing thought that I wanted to share. And I think it relates to the topic of AI and how we should go about our lives with it lingering. And it is to stop asking people, and especially children, what do they want to be when they grow up? Because the answers to this question obviously are very distinct careers. And I feel like they really limit us as people when we have this one idea of who we want to be. And then we just kind of, you know, go to university, get a job. And then we don't actually continue lifelong learning and developing those very human skills that make us human and that make us creative and curious. So I think a better question to ask people and kids is what kind of problem or issue do they want to solve and how will they do it? Um, I think that really perpetuates this lifelong learning and curiosity later on. So I think that's a good way to approach 
this uh, AI topic. Archie and Danny, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. We'll see you back again very soon. Of course, thanks for having us on. Thank you very much. Yeah, and to our audience, um, by now we've beaten the horse to death about where to find us on social media. It's at Wake Up Call Podcast with underscores in between on our Instagram, and it's just at Wake Up Call Podcast on TikTok. All right, see you later.